I'm Mark Gagan, and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast, produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling an enterprise view of exposure. Today's guest is part of a team busy building a reinsurance broker to challenge the big three almost across the board. We'll never see the numbers, but it's highly likely that this firm has invested the most of all the challenger reinsurance brokers in the past two years. During that time, it has seen its headcount quintuple to 225, and it has opened 12 new offices to be represented in 13 locations. Despite this incredibly fast growth, Keith Harrison, international CEO of Lockton Re, has his feet firmly on the ground and is one of the most level-headed and straight-talking brokers I have interviewed on this podcast. Indeed, with so much uncertainty for reinsurance intermediaries over the past two years, and with the daily news only prolonging the agony for many, Keith's claim that Lockton Re is actually one of the most stable places to come to work rings fairly true. Listen on for more details on how Lockton Re plans to bring the fight to its larger rivals and a comprehensive diagnosis of reinsurance market conditions at the mid-year renewals. Enjoy the podcast. Hi, I'm Rick J. Lindsay, Chairman and CEO of Claims Direct Access, otherwise known as CDA. We all read about the claims nightmares in the United States of America, social inflation, nuclear verdicts, and the sky is falling. Hardly a day goes by without the news of reserve strengthening at major carriers. However, it's not all bad news. In the United States of America, we have the best legal system in the world, which allows you to fight frivolous claims and litigation and come out on top. In this kind of environment, you must get smarter about how you handle your claims and who your partners are. You have to move fast and be robust. CDA has been handling claims for over 40 years nationwide and has a team of 46 claims professionals, including 12 highly skilled attorneys and litigators. We have handled cases for major Lloyd syndicates since 1994, as well as U.S.-based major carriers, and have closed over 70,000 claims since 1994 nationwide. Not settling frivolous litigations is a must. CDA claim service means going the extra mile, handling claims quickly and vigorously with a proactive approach. Why not get in contact now to see how CDA can do the same amazing work for you and your partners that they do for me every day? Visit www.claimsdirectaccess.com today. Keith, thank you so much for coming on The Voice of Insurance. I'm sure everyone's incredibly busy. Everyone seems to be more and more busy. So thank you so much for giving up the time. Part of that busyness is this almost frenzy. It seems to be, we have these periods in our careers, I think, of, of frenzies of broker consolidation, where it seems as if every week something else is happening. And we're in one of those periods right now. What is that Aon Willis and all these other announcements that we've, that we've seen in the wholesale broker consolidation scene? What's that doing to the dynamics of the broker space right now? Well, Mark, I think it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think it's just creating a huge amount of instability, really, in the market at the moment. It's certainly disrupting the status quo, which could be not a bad thing, actually. And for the likes of us and others, it's paving the way for the challenge of brokers. You know, if you think about it, Willis Re won't exist going forward. JLT Re is gone. And with everything else that's going on in terms of the M&A space in the broker world, I think there's a sort of a hiring opportunity like we've never seen before. 
them in terms of people moving around. And that's going on on the underwriting side to a degree as well, perhaps as a follow-on from a lot of the M&A that's gone on there. But I think to some degree it's concerning for clients because people in this business are our biggest assets. We certainly are at broking houses. And for clients, when they're thinking about selecting brokers, you know, they very much want stability. They want people there that really understand their companies and their books of business. And I think there's just a huge amount of instability that's coming from all of this. And ironically, when I think about Lockton, having sort of invested really heavily in the business in the last sort of 18 to 24 months, I think we've gone from something like 45 people to sort of 225. But we're oddly enough, one of the most stable out there at the moment, I would have thought. So yeah, very much changing times. And I think status quo in the broking world's changing as well. So do you think it's that opportunity to hire brokers that you know are skillful and that have good client followings? Is that more important? Or do you think some of it's going to be client-driven because the clients are feeling that they're not getting the service with their current brokers because the current brokers are slightly in a bit of a mess with all sorts of reorganizations going on? I don't think clients want to see a lot of movement from the brokers. You know, When you're making decisions around big parts of your business, and you're not sure whether the people you're dealing with are going to be there any longer or not, uh, who's going to be handling your account, what the culture is going to be like of a merged broking house and that kind of thing. You know, I think it's disconcerting. And one of the things that we're very fortunate about is, you know, I talked about the amount of people we've hired, but those people have all chosen to come and join our company because of what we're building and the culture that we've got. And that isn't as a result of having to be at a company because you were acquired by that. And Certainly through my career, when I was at Towers Watson and we sold to JLT or JLT going to Marsh Guy Carpenter, you know, that sort of change of culture and that uncertainty that comes. I mean, I feel to a great degree, I feel for a lot of the Willis people. I mean, it's just been a very difficult time in the market for them at the moment. But I really do think that the status quo in the broken world is changing. I think it is in the industry overall, actually. You're definitely in the mix with this investment and that backing from right at the top of Lockton to build. And I presume it'd be right to say that obviously this time next year, if we had another interview, you would be bigger than you are now in terms of headcount. What else is your pitch though? Obviously everyone wants to be going for that number three spot that's going to become vacant very soon. How are you going to make that pitch? Is the pitch just, we're not one of the big two? Yeah. You know, Mark, our plan was already set pre- Aon Willis, that's certainly not the driver. I mean, it was perhaps the icing on the cake and it may have accelerated a few things for us. But very much for us, our plan was about attracting the best people in the industry, putting them on our platform, which we think is a fantastic private platform, and then wrapping around state-of-the-art technology and analytics. And that's exactly what we've done. You know, in terms of going out there, the people we've hired Bob Bissett joins us later this week as a great example. We've hired some great industry people, and it's been whether they've been available or not. So, that, you know, that's been one of the strong pillars for us. And then the second thing I think that's been really important is our platform. And you're just having that ability to think long-term in terms of investment that comes with being part of a private company. No longer are we living sort of quarter to quarter and keeping an eye on our sort of incremental earnings, et cetera, you're very much investing to build a long-term business. And I think that's very attractive both to our people and to our clients. And then finally, it's just, just being able to wrap that around with technology. The industry's changing hugely on the technology side, never mind all the other things. So we're feeling a very good place at the moment. Keith, on that tech side, 
people all say to me these days, you know, also on the carrier side, the class of 2020, they were the class of 2005 or 2001 or, you know, in the mid 90s, they'd have been saying, obviously, we've got no legacy reserves. And what we're all about is a clean pot of capital to go and underwrite with. Because these days, they major on the lack of legacy in technology as being almost as important as the clean capital. Of course, as we know, there doesn't seem to be any real shortage of capital in the world. How's that been for you? Maybe 20 years ago, building a reinsurance broking operation, you wouldn't be able to scale it so easily as you would do today. Has being effectively almost a startup on the reinsurance side been a bit of an advantage? Or certainly, does it feel that you can scale quickly without incurring huge incremental costs? I think it's been a huge advantage, really, starting with a blank canvas. We've been able to build out uh, you know, a global operating platform that we all sit on. So everyone within Lockton is on the same platform. It's brand new, it's modern, it's digital, it spits out the MI that we need in today's age. So, you know, I think that's hugely important. I think as well, just in terms of some of the analytics tools out there, I mean we have our centerpiece analytics tool, which is Sage which is web-based. And again, one of the great advantages in having that technology is that you don't spend hours of the day trying to figure out what your numbers are, what's going on in the business. That comes to you just because of the technology. I think also the way the industry is changing as well in terms of trading, whether it be electronic trading or whether it be just on the transfer of data through APIs and that kind of thing. I think just being able to start from scratch and build innovation on top of that, put your people on top of that platform is a huge, huge advantage and something that, you know, I'm sure some of the more established broking houses, you know, having to contend with old technology and old systems, many of which were built sort of 10, 20 years ago and gone through various iterations and band-aids and those kind of things. So I do think it's a huge advantage. And I think the industry is changing that. Of course, COVID has helped to some degree bring the industry forward on that front as well. So very definitely a big plus. All your clients can just, you know, when you've got submissions and big renewals coming up, it all appears magically in your system, all the new data and all exposure data, et cetera. Yeah, that's right. It's funny that you should say that because of course, there's always data that it depends on who you're trading with in terms of the quality of the data you get and those kind of things. But I think from our perspective, we've set up various different pilots with different reinsurers and different clients as well to transfer information exactly how people want to see it and go directly through APIs into their systems and so on and so forth. And I just think that whether it be us or others with that blank canvas, being able to build from nothing has really been a huge advantage. And I, and I actually think it holds others back not being able to do that. Obviously, you've been growing incredibly fast, but this has been organic, broker by broker, higher. Do you ever think there's a place for M&A as part of that growth strategy? Perhaps not the kind of massive transformational stuff that we're seeing elsewhere, but perhaps bolt-on geographical M&A, that kind of thing? I wouldn't rule it out is probably the best way to put it. But really, we're very much business builders rather than integrators. And I think the important thing for us is something that we put right at the center of everything we do really is culture. And I think that's a lot more difficult to achieve and get the culture that you want as a business through M&A and through integrating the business. So I wouldn't rule it out, but, you know, Lockton's as a group is, you know, a $2.1 billion revenue company. And there's been some acquisitions over the years, but really in the grand scheme of things, not a lot. Lockton grows over 10% organically every year, has done for years as a business. And from a reinsurance perspective, we're very much focused on organic growth as a company. So it wouldn't rule out acquisitions, but be very much 
centred around our culture and finding the right fit for that. I can only think of Alexander Forbes, which was whatever in 2006. You know, that's probably the only big M&A that Olofsson's ever involved in. That's right. Well, as you're making your way in the world, growing in scale, how do you feel in terms of your strategy? Do you have to transition at some point? I suppose when you're a small broker, you consider, I'm a specialist. I'm really good at these classes of business. You know, I'm a specialist in US casualty or specialty reinsurance, you know, London market excess or whatever. But when you get to a certain scale, then do you have to become a generalist and go head to head with those mega brokers across the board? Or do you still feel that you can pick specialist areas? Well, I think it depends what you're building out, Mark, you know, whether you are building out to be a specialist broker in a particular area or a geography. And we're not. I mean, we have areas that we are specialists in in certain areas, probably where we're almost market leaders already. But we're building out a global business here and we've built out really across the spectrum when it comes to product and specialty. You know, we've gone from one location two years ago to now 13 locations. We're in the US, we're in Bermuda and here in London. And in terms of product line, as I said, whether it's PNC or specialty classes, I mean, in the US, you know, we're targeting global clients, regional clients. We're targeting, you know, whether it be property, casualty, or all the subsects of those here in London, all of that, plus also, you know, very much looking at the specialty lines that are perhaps a bit more London focused, like aviation and marine and energy and terrorism and cyber and those kind of lines. They're global lines of business, but a lot of the time the centre of excellence sits in London. So, you know, very much building out cross spectrum of the industry. And we absolutely go head to head with the bigger brokers. That's what we've set out to do. And that's what we're doing. And we're competing very effectively on RFPs and winning business at the moment. And we're really delighted about the support we've had and the business that we've generated because it hasn't been in one particular area alone. I mean, yeah, we've got a very strong healthcare area, both sides of the Atlantic on the Mel side, and if not a market leader in that. But we're generating business from the large global companies to the regional companies, to the specialist companies, to Lloyd syndicates. It could be retro business, it could be terrorism, it could be cyber, it could be marine, energy, aviation. It's really across property cat, it could be across the spectrum. And, and that's what's been so pleasing for us because we've deliberately gone out to build strong capability and depth with very experienced people in those classes of business. And it's been really rewarding to see support coming from across the board. So there's no doubt about the ambition. Those two big three brokers would expect to see you in an RFP in almost any class in any territory sometime soon. Yeah, I think so. Look, we, we haven't planted flags down everywhere around the world and we won't. You know, one of the beauties of what we're building out is we haven't put a time frame on it. And again, come back to our private ownership. You know, we don't have to develop our growth on an incremental quarter by quarter basis. So we can pick and choose the right time to enter different marketplaces. Maybe some marketplaces we won't enter at all. At the moment, as I said, we're, we're very much in London, Bermuda and the United States. And that's keeping us very busy. Of course, we do business in other parts of the world as well, but largely out of these these hubs, we do have some sister regional companies in other parts of the world too, and we work very collaboratively with them. But yeah, in answer to your question, we're here to take on you know all comers, big and small. So in terms of that strategy, if you're sort of, let's call it the going for it strategy, with that, do you have to really keep growing to keep staying relevant there? I'm just trying to gauge a sense of, you talk about the timeframe being relaxed or, you know, on a different timeframe from everyone else because you're a private company. 
but obviously there always is a sort of report card. How much pressure do you have to get that growth really going at a point where it might a decision be made that you've tried, but it's not quite happened quick enough? Yeah, well, as I said, we've certainly just built business over time. We've been very pleased with our progress to date. You know, at the moment, we're cautious about where we place our chips. And as you said before, we've handpicked who we've hired. We very much built a strategy, again, around being a highly technical broker, invested very heavily in our analytics, thought very carefully about which lines of business we really invest in. And we've avoided those that where we don't think the opportunity is right at the moment. So in answer to your question, we actually don't have a time frame. We, you know, our time frame is very much to grow a long-term, sustainable, profitable business. So that's exactly what we're doing. We're, we're very much on course for that at the moment. And there's not too much more to it. We've just come through the first part of the mid-year renewals. And obviously, I'm sure there's a few of the July ones uh, still out there. But what's the report card at the moment? Obviously, it's such an interesting marketplace at the moment. While I've got you on the line, I'd love to hear your take on what's going on. What are the dynamics in play? I think it's pretty predictable to some degree. There's no shortage of capital around. Obviously, there's been a lot of reloading of capital from existing players. We've been obviously well talked about new entrants. So there's plenty of capital around. I think sentiment's changed, and obviously, capital needs to generate a return. But I think as the last of 18 months or so have played out, they're pretty predictable, really. I think for some of the commodity lines, the property cap, and even on the retro side, we've seen price increases over the years. We saw price increases again as we come into this year, but the rate of increases slowed down. I don't think it was to the degree that a lot of the reinsurers and all the press were speculating about, but nonetheless there's been positive upward rate movement. I think the casualty lines have been very interesting. It's been, as is well talked about, it's been very much insurance driven with substantial re-underwriting, particularly in certain lines, you know, financial lines, commercial auto, etc. Some of those lines have considerable way to go. This on the direct side. And I think from the reinsurance perspective, there's been a lot of support out there on a quota share basis to take advantage of some of those underlying rate increases. But there are other lines that are more challenging and, you know, excess of loss continues on the casualty side to see confirming, particularly in areas like workers' comp, where the original pricing hasn't been as positive in terms of movement. You know, there are other very challenging lines that are still out there, like the DNO and the financial lines of the commercial auto and the excess umbrella market. So I think it's fairly predictable from our perspective in terms of what we've seen. Certainly a much stronger market now than it has been, but I don't think it's a runaway market either. Do you get a sense that on the casualty side, some of the cedents where perhaps two years ago they were nervous and looking for more reinsurance support and happy to accept that support, perhaps with lower seeding commissions on the proportional side, that they're gaining confidence now that they've had a couple of years of rate rises, that they're gaining confidence that they'd be happy to retain some of that business if their insurer doesn't want to play ball on the seeding commission or whatever, that they would feel that they're going to be retaining profit rather than seeding away losses. Yeah, I think there is some of that, but it's a marketplace and people are in different positions. There's still a lot of uncertainty around. I mean, there's no doubt about that. Just in the world generally, they see economic uncertainty, obviously, as a result of the pandemic. We've had a lot of the legal system shut down for long parts of the year, etc. So I think there's a lot of uncertainty around at the moment. So it's very much moving at different speeds, I think, depending on the different carriers. Contingency, great example, as a class of business, for instance, where you see, as you always have, 
time and time again, as we've gone through different market cycles, you see people pulling out because it's not core or it, you know, that bad experience, it doesn't make sense to continue with or whatever it is. And you see others seeing it as an opportunity and it's the market for you at the moment. And I think it is moving at lots of different speeds at the moment. Generally, it's a positive upwards market rather than a downwards market, but I, but I think it's moving at different speeds. Is there any sense of a worry about, obviously, with the lost trends being almost put on pause because of courts being shut, etc.? So the jury's out on that, literally. <laughs> it is. I mean, that's, that's a good way to put it. I mean, it, it is. I think that's the case. I mean, there's buzzword of a few years pre-pandemic was, you know, social inflation, social inflation, etc. Um, well, that hasn't gone away. Now, what will be interesting is to see to the degree that the world's changed as a result of the pandemic and the degree that some of those things come back. Obviously, you've got a change in political scene in the United States, for instance, and those kind of things. But no, I think we are looking at a world of uncertainty, as I said, and yeah. uh, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. That's something that seems to have come back again is a worry about, rather than social inflation, just pure economic price inflation. Yeah. You know, we've had anecdotal evidence about lumber prices, for example. So that's the first time I've heard that for a while since perhaps the end of the financial crisis when there was a worry about financial inflation returning because of all the money that had been pumped into the financial system. Do you get that sense of any kind of fear from reinsurers or, or students? on that part of pure inflation affecting lost trends? No, I, I think it's always a factor. But, you know, there are things that offset that as well. We've seen reductions in frequency. So, look, I think there's a lot of different elements that go into looking at the various different drivers of pricing and of loss costs. And I think people are looking at all of them at the moment. I mean, I feel very optimistic for the business at the moment. I think there are some areas that have some challenges, for sure. And as I said, there's no doubt there's a lot of uncertainty around. But at the same time, there's a lot more sophistication in the business now than there has been in the past, more so than ever, I think. So I do feel optimistic. From a broker's perspective, it's a good market. There's plenty of choice. There are different opinions. There are deals to be done. And you can navigate these on behalf of your clients. And you can usually get them at least the cover they need, maybe not the price they wanted. Certainly for Lockton Re, it's a good market to be in at the moment because clients want choices. They want options because of all those different variables at the moment. They want people who will challenge the status quo, will say, well, actually, have you thought about this? Have you thought about doing it this way? And I think that's a lot more exciting as well, let's face it. I mean, go back five years ago, the market was really quite dull. Moving away from the cut and thrust of the present day, perhaps spend a few minutes talking about the future. Obviously, quite a futuristic operation because you know, you're know you building something with a long-term future plan. So we've talked about digital and we've talked about having an efficient platform, but with a really big picture, with a kind of blue sky kind of picture, talking a long time ahead, obviously we're seeing a huge amount of digital change. We've had algorithmic underwriting, key syndicate, and, and other similar sorts of things, and automatic, semi-automatic, portfolio underwriting, really interesting developments. What's your view on that from a broker? Where do you want Locked and Reed to be playing in all those different spaces, new spaces that are opening up, which presumably some of them are going to be successful and take big market share in the future? Presumably some won't work, but want to take your view on where you want to play in all of that. Well, certainly in terms of playing in the digital era from our own perspective, in terms of our own systems and analytics and so on and so forth, and how the underwriting world operates is you know, probably more a question for them. I mean, you know, we're very supportive and not singling out anyone, but you, know, you mentioned Key Syndicate. Uh, you know, I think that's a really interesting and dynamic you know, model that they put together and seems to be going very well. 
and there are others following suit. So it's probably more a question for them than it is for me. But from a Lockton perspective, we're here to look after our clients and operate with all the available markets that are out there, you know, on the basis that they want to trade. We're not got any issues with any of that. We don't feel that you've got to invest in double guessing or reverse engineering what all those algorithms are going to say so that you can game them and you can get even better deals for your clients or that kind of thing. The response to algorithmic underwriting would be algorithmic broking strategies of some, some description. <laughs> you can say that, Mark. I, uh, <laughs> I don't know. We certainly haven't experienced any of that. We should probably talk about the people. It is a people business, massively people business, and you can't do it without those people. But obviously, as we're preparing for this future world that's going to be more digital, more analytical, and more and more of many other things we don't know yet, what sort of skills are you looking for now you're out actively hiring people? What sort of people and what sort of skills are you looking for that perhaps you weren't looking for 20 years ago? Certainly the world's changed and you'd be disappointed if it hadn't in, in that sort of time frame. But some of the grads and the younger people that we bring in now, I mean, I think people now very much need it all. And perhaps going back to when you and I first got into the business, you know, you had your knife and fork people and you had your very siloed contract wordings individual and you had your act three was maybe a number cruncher. Today, People are going to have a bit of everything. And I'm just amazed at some of the quality and abilities of the people we bring in, uh, whether they're young or others have been in the industry for a time and have honed new skills. But really, you know, your actuaries and your modelers don't just sit at a desk and crunch numbers anymore. They're out there. They're advising clients. They're providing huge amounts of insight. They're presenting thoughts and ideas. Similarly, the skill sets of brokers now are highly technical, but still need to obviously be able to articulate well, I think you've just got this really different dynamic now where the business, for want of a better term, is much more at the front end. We used to talk about back room and front room. Today, I think they're much more merged in terms of how we operate. And, you know, let's not lose sense in terms of the other areas of the business, the service side of the business, because I think that's really important. And the skill sets in that side of the business are vital as well. I mean, we've invested hugely in developing a high service model. So well, I'm talking about sort of accounting and claims and those kind of things, because not only do you need the technical knowledge, not only do you need the claims broking ability, the client advocacy and understanding the classes of business and the nuances of and everything as well. But also, you know, an awful lot of it, we're making really strong use of technology and we want to make sure that our people are talking with our clients rather than just sending emails through as well. So again, on all parts of the business, I think there's a lot more of a rounded and multidisciplinary type of skill sets that are needed these days. And that's certainly the people that we're looking for. Everybody in the business, there's nowhere to hide anymore. Everyone needs to be able to present their ideas to a client, whoever they are almost. I think so. And I think there's not a place for mediocrity, really. Certainly, you know, within our company, as I said, was very much handpicking the people we attract to the company and certainly those are the skill sets we're looking for anyway. Keith, you already mentioned about culture. Obviously, at some point, if this goes to plan and in 20 years time, we're having a, maybe a final sort of curtain dropper with you and I sort of in our Zimmer frames on, Zimmer, on our Zoom yeah. chat. And you've succeeded and, you know, you've actually bust into the really big brokers club because you've had this fantastic organic growth compounding year after year after year. And you've become one of the indisputable top three, top two for insurance broker. Obviously, you won't be able to handpick people then. So what is it about that culture that you'll hope will have been retained that would keep that success going, even as you get to the sort of scale where you suddenly realize you can't handpick everybody and you don't know the first names of everybody you work with anymore? 
I don't think it is about size and scale, to be honest, though, Mark. I think it is more about culture, to be honest. And we don't need to be a top three or four or put a number on it broker. That's not what we're about. At the center of everything we do is culture. We're very much client-first culture. We're very collaborative. We're very technical. You know, we all spend more time at work quite often than we do at home. And that's a really important thing for us. So we want to be out there as a broker of quality, someone that retains our clients. You know, we've had a lot of clients in my career that we've worked on for literally my whole career that are now with us here in locked and re and, and that's the same for a, a number of our colleagues so for us i'd love for our company to have retained our good people because they want to work here they like what we're doing and, they, and it's about people and clients for us and, and for us to attracted and built a really strong client base and that those clients are still with us and value what we're doing and that's really the litmus test you know we'd love to have a legacy within the business for those that are here building it now to hand on to future generations. And so that's more the sort of how we tend to think about things rather than we've got to be a huge broker where we don't know the people and it's much more difficult to handpick and all those kind of things. Yeah, we'll cross that bridge. If that leads to growth at that level, we'll cross that bridge when we get to it. It would be a nice problem to have, but supposed to distill that vision of the culture you want. So it's clients, fun workplace, where everyone's very professional, relies on each other, collaborative, that kind of thing. Is, is that really it? Well, it is. I mean, you know, we bring a high service model, highly technical, you know, all those different attributes to the business. But fundamentally, it's about adding value to our clients and working closely with our colleagues. And, you know, that's the business where we set out to build. And I think it's different where, particularly, I think, in a public environment where an awful lot of it is about shareholder return. And again, I come back to this point of living quarter by quarter and incremental increases. And what have we done on organic growth this quarter? What's our margin this quarter? And, you know, for us, it's very much about, obviously, it's important to grow and be profitable and all those kind of things. But it's what you focus on. And for us, it's, it's very definitely around our clients and the people that work in. And the shareholders will be looked after <laughs> in their own way, if we can concentrate on that. Yeah. What about the leadership style? So it sounds like it's quite collegiate. You don't spend a lot of time telling people what to do, I presume. You're working it all out together. That's right. Very flat management and deliberately so. And it's enjoyable. I mean, we've got a great management team, both sides of the Atlantic, and we very much work as one. So absolutely. Well, Keith, thank you so much for your time. I've really enjoyed catching up with you again. Good luck with everything. Good luck with all this building and this long-term project that you've got. I think I think a lot of people will be envious that you seem to have a very patient owner and patient plan to not go hell for leather. So I really appreciate you giving the time, and I hope you're booking time again to speak to us at some point in the future. In the meantime, thank you very much for your time. You're welcome, Mark. Thanks very much for having me on. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, Don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this programme. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost-effective. So get in touch with Mark 
at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance is produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling an enterprise view of exposure. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com. Thank you.